This is the game podcast from The Times. Today, Leicester City win the FA Cup for the first time in their history. Alisson, Liverpool's goalkeeper, scores to keep their Champions League hopes alive, while Chelsea's dreams are shattered in the Women's Champions League final. And we'll take a look at the plights of both Wolves and Everton as they stare at lacklustre ends to the season. All that and more on today's episode of The Game. To help me through it all, Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark. How are you guys? Just call me Alison, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Still on cloud nine, we will get to events at the Hawthorns very quickly. But I thought we had to begin really with a special moment for Leicester City. They beat Chelsea 1-0 in the 140th FA Cup final, thanks to a stunning goal from the Belgian midfielder Yuri Tielemans. But it was their first FA Cup triumph after four previous final defeats, the last of which was way back in 1969. And it really caps a transformation for the club, which began with their 5,000 to one shot Premier League title win back in 2016. I think the day was made even more special by the return of 21,000 fans inside Wembley as well. Tom Clark, for, for many reasons, it was an emotional day. It certainly was. It, this sounds really cheesy, but watching the game with fans, it just made me feel like really hopeful. That's, that sounds very, very cheesy, I know. And Greg is already laughing at me, but you know, just not even not even for the spectacular goals and the the VAR moments, but hearing the kind of you know the nonsense roar of when your team gets a corner, all those sort of mad and glorious things that we have at a football match. I don't know. Just in these strange times, it made me feel really. Uh, really hopeful that uh, things can be uh, returning to what they were before, certainly in a footballing sense at the very least. Um, I mean, it was just, it was a great final, even though it was only one nil, it was, it was a fantastic final for neutrals. Unfortunately for Chelsea, they were playing the bad guys, I think slightly exacerbated by the, the super league narrative. I don't think it's anything personal to Chelsea. It could have been any of those traditional big six playing Leicester. Um, and we would have all been cheering when that VAR goal was uh, ruled out, uh, unfortunately, but it was fantastic. And what a goal by Yuri Tillemans as well! What a what an absolutely unbelievable strike! And when you watched it back as well, you're watching the replay, and you thought he meant to put it in that exact spot. Sometimes you watch someone smash the ball from a long way out, and you're thinking, okay, they're probably going for that side of the goal or get it on target. It looked like he actually placed it with the inside of his boot. It was unbelievable. I thoroughly enjoyed it, as you can tell you. I really enjoyed myself. <laughs> I mean, even, even despite working as well, I was working and having to watch and I still managed to thoroughly enjoy it. Alison, was this result written in the stars? Oh my God, we're going, we're going a bit very cheesy. We're going extremely brief like today. <laughs> we're starting um, high. I like it. I like it. Uh, it. Well, in some respects, I know why you're asking. It did feel like that. It did feel like the whole world, apart from a very small pocket of West London, were behind Leicester. The I think I watched coverage on all outlets. It was all very pro Leicester. I think a lot of the analysis after the game has been very pro Leicester as well. Um, I don't think Chelsea were as bad as most pundits and commentators and writers are saying. And I do think if the decisions had gone against Leicester, there'd be an outcry about that offside goal. Absolute devastation. Everyone would be shouting, that's not a, a, a case of injustice. That player was level. It's a goal. It's a goal. What are you talking about? But because everyone wanted Leicester to win, because they're not in the big six, 
um, it didn't seem to matter. And in the build-up to their goal, the, the, if the referee had seen it, he would have given a free kick against Leicester, against Perez for that handball, and he didn't see it. Again, because it didn't it didn't affect Leicester. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. So I, mm. I did feel, but mm. I do also feel <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll wait until we I'll wait until we talk about West Brom. Don't you worry, Tom. <laughs> Go on, Alison. But I do feel uh, Chelsea. It was it was also interesting to start looking in the stars wise that Tuchel had also been built up as a coach that gets a bit too conservative when it's um, a showpiece event, and he did it again. I think his lineup was conservative. It was, you know, the, the reason he's been so successful since taking over at Chelsea is his wing-back system and how effective that is. And his wing-backs did nothing. I mean, there's no point having that system if they don't do anything. So he was conservative. He he, he was sort of, he seemed to be saying, we're worried about Jamie Vardy, so we'll put Rhys James in a centre-back role and will play slow people out wide. What's the point of doing that? So he he was the architect partly of of his own downfall, but I don't think there was a lot in it in terms of if you were to mark the teams, I think they were pretty close and it was one wonder goal. What won it in the end? Yeah, We did get that special sound as well. Speaking about sounds that have returned, thanks to fans being back in the stadium, you know, of a VAR decision cancelling out a goal, which of course, you know, that muted silence is something we've, we've missed as well. Right, Gregor? Um, I think social media quite enjoyed it as well. Some of the videos <laughs> are being shared. Chelsea fans in absolute raptures and then the realisation dawning on the face. Oh my God. It certainly does bring some drama. You know, as much as we've spoken about how much we hate VAR, well, a lot of us have. Um, it added drama to that 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 end at the moment, and it, and and Schmeichel save. We have to say as well, Schmeichel save was one of what what a save, what a iron iron like wrist. <laughs> it was ridiculous, um, but it was. It did feel like I know we're getting cheesy, but it did feel like it was written in the stars. That you know, Wes Morgan getting thrown on for a kind of late cameo almost scoring an own goal, which would have been catastrophic. You know, pro- that's probably going to be his last ever game. Um, Schmeichel's save, the owner coming on the end, you know, how emotion- you know, emotional he was and how you could see that the players were invested in the fact that this meant a lot for him as well. Um, you know, pointing up to the, the picture of his dad in the stand. And- so, yeah, it was, it was a kind of, it was a bit like a, an old-fashioned FA Cup final and it was a moment that kind of, Although we're saying yes, everyone seemed to everyone wanted Leicester to win. It, everyone was unified in that that feeling, apart from Chelsea fans, obviously. It was a bit of a unifying afternoon, and the spectacle of having fans back. I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant spectacle. Guess who woke up with the FA Cup on Sunday morning? The owner. Yeah, well done. Normally those stories, Alison, end with you saying me. So I was thinking, how on, <laughs> how on earth has Alison got hold of the FA Cup? Now that would have been a great story. But no, sorry. But <laughs> no, I think that, that, doesn't that fact sum it up? That yes. Normally we don't, we wouldn't talk so much about ownership, but because of what we've been through with the Super League proposals, it's like we love the Leicester owners even more. We knew they were paternalistic. We know they're generous. They're, they're always giving freebies out. It's just, and the, I mean, everyone you speak to at Leicester, whether it's the manager or a player or behind the scenes staff, they love, they love the owner. I mean, I'm not one, I, I started with su- such enthusiasm. Maybe I've used it all up because I'm already coming back with a cynical <laughs> point here, but it, it, it's huge pressure now on Leicester, isn't it? For the next couple of years, they are the the beacon of hope at the top of the Premier League, and 
you know, far be it. I really hope Brendan Rodgers doesn't have a disastrous start to next season and then they sack him and bring in a highly paid manager from overseas and all of a sudden we're all going, boo, we hate Leicester. Oh, they're (laughs) horrible. There's a lot of pressure on them now. They're like, you know, the nice guy who can't do anything wrong, who can never say anything bad, never get drunk and say something a little bit inappropriate to his mates. And then you're like, (laughs) hmm. Actually, maybe he's not a great guy after all. So huge pressure. Don't, club, don't, just club, don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. That's all I'm saying. No, but Tom, it's a club that managed to sack Dilly Ding, Dilly Dong, and no one minded. I mean, you you there was can a get bit, away with it. There was a, there was a little bit, wasn't there, um, around the Ranieri thing. There was a little bit of um, anger and frustration around that uh, sacking. But no, I take your point. But, but since then, they've risen even it's higher, haven't of, they, in uh, our estimation? It's because of being... It's because of so many different stories and plot lines in the lesser story. Jamie Vardy and Wes Morgan and the the tragedy, uh, just the rise. There's been so many different sort of narratives sort of all tied into to make Leicester's rise in this, you know, along with how smartly they're running, how intelligently they've, you know, how, how they've got here. There are so many kind of human stories as well, which is why everyone was rooting for them, I think. And so I think, you know, everyone was delighted to see delighted to see them shake it up. Yeah, I, I, look, I think it was uh, one of the f- most recent FA Cup finals that I think meant a lot to the widespread public as well. And maybe that's because fans were back and we've missed it as well. Maybe it was the subplot. Leicester City, of course, everyone's favourite, you know, second team. But I do think watching it at the end as a neutral, it was was really emotional. You know, and, and that rarely happens. Yeah. Hasn't happened to me, I don't think, in any any sort of FA Cup final, whether my team was in it or not. Those sorts of, maybe it's the pandemic, you know, all of it rolled into one, you know, just this feeling that we're getting back to some sense of normality in 21,000 fans, you know, feels like an olive branch compared to what we've been going through. You know, it feels like a small thing, but... Um, but equally a small thing that seems huge because of course it leads to, to 90,000 fans hopefully being back next year and what a day that would be as well. Um, Gregor, I, I just wanted to ask you about Chelsea really um, because tactically in terms of the game itself, uh, just like the Arsenal match, if you play the same formation as Chelsea, it might be a, a turgid, boring game, but they find it difficult to play against wingbacks. Why is that? You know, Alison's right, but I also think that Chelsea still create chances, and part of the part of the issue is that they fault the team with Werner a lot of the time, and he he's, he's, his finishing's been woeful. He does a lot of good work for the team, and it just his finishing is not not up, not being up to it. So I just I still think there's just it's really fine margins. The thing is when when Chelsea were have been so successful and they've had this great run, the margins were fine then. I think they've only scored more than two goals in one game, and that was against Crystal Palace, who were really below par throughout that whole run there's a lot of a lot of the victories were dependent on a clean sheet so when that you know when that starts to wobble a little bit then this is the result and you know it was with the fine margins against Arsenal there were fine margins in this game of our decision a magnificent save um, there were other good chances that Chelsea had and created uh, you know they weren't playing at the best and I think this is just this is kind of Thomas Tuchel and since he's been at Chelsea the margins have been very very fine all, all the way through Um I mean, you come to a cup final. This is this is this is the the potential for when you when the when the margins are that fine. I think it's a huge game um, between the sides in the Premier League. I mean, of course it is. It's not just me thinking that. Um, you know, both of their Champions League places really rest on a, a win, positive result. Um, what do you think will change, if anything, in that game, Gregor? 
Well, I think a lot of it will depend on how uh, how Leicester are, you know, emotionally and physically after that that experience. You know, if we all found it emotional. Imagine what it was like for them. So, um, and possibly their celebrations. So that will be one interesting factor. Um, but clearly, Leicester a draw would be fine. I think Leicester if Leicester don't lose, they're they're delighted. Um, Chelsea is a little bit different. So. I think probably they'll set out to try and frustrate Chelsea a little bit again. And, you know, you can't rely upon a Yuri Tielemann screamer, but there were avenues, you know, will he, will he try and play Reese James in the in a back three again to kind of snaffle out Jamie Vardy's threat? I, I would say that that worked broadly speaking. Obviously, he gave away the ball for the goal. That was one mistake, I think, that worked for most of the afternoon. Um, but I think from Leicester's point of view, they go, they go there again to try and frustrate Chelsea. And... As we're saying, they're not scoring enough goals to, if, if Leicester get a goal, they'll have a good chance of getting a draw. I think Alison and Gregor are both right in that I'd expect Reese James to play in that more defensive position, but you'd then have Callum Hudson-Odoi, for example, maybe playing as a right wing back to offer some pace and threat going forward, obviously far greater than Aspilicueta did. But the other thing that was interesting was in the first half, Mason Mount was finding a lot of space in those little pockets that we all talk about on, you know, kind of 10 yards from the edge of the box. And Hakim Ziyech wasn't doing that. And so I wonder whether Tuchel might look to Kai Havertz or someone else to say, there's space there, you can try and pull Leicester's back three out of position. Because actually at half time, Chelsea were broadly on top, I felt, and that Leicester hadn't looked great. Siontu had been pulled around quite a lot by Mason Mount's movement. And so... Yes, it would be great if Chelsea had another Mason Mount, but essentially that's what they need to look at. Maybe those those pockets of space, and that's where you can get at a back three if you if you move them around and then attack the spaces in and around behind them. So I'd expect to see check changes from Tuchel, um, not many from Leicester. Although <clears throat> they're probably going to be without Johnny Evans, so they'll be relying on Fafana to have another fantastic performance as he did in the final to try and keep them in it. I'd, I'd guess. Another key position, I think, is whether Matej Kovacic is fit. I mean, we were teased with the idea he might be able to start the FA Cup final. I think that might have been the wrong thing to do, to raise hopes amongst the squad, because he's so valuable. I mean, he's a class above, I would say, a class above anyone in both midfields. So if he was to pop up on Tuesday, I think that would make a phenomenal, phenomenal difference, actually. He, I mean, he, he's very good at keeping possession, very good at spotting um, the runs of players. Who may, Chelsea have lots of players who make beautiful runs. They're just, their finishing is pretty shocking. I think Pulisic's got to feel a bit unfortunate not to be getting more game time too. I think he's been impressive really whenever he's played under Tuchel. So, I, you know, I'm, if I was him, I'd be pretty disappointed not to be, to be getting the nod in some of these games because, you know, particularly against Real Madrid, he was outstanding as well. Um and and I thought when he came on, he was lively too. So, I, you know, I think perhaps he might get a, a run out on Tuesday. If Leicester miss out on the Champions League for the second time in two years, Tom, having fallen away so badly last season, is it is it a failure? I don't think it's a failure. It's interesting that you asked that question. I've got a friend of mine who's a Leicester fan who was watching uh, in a pub garden going absolutely crazy on Saturday. And I'd asked her beforehand, what would you rather and the response was instant, shiny trophy, please. So I, d- I think a lot of Leicester fans won't see it as a different failure. question. 
No, but I don't think <laughs> I, I don't I don't so to come back to your point about whether it's a failure, I don't even think it will matter now that they've won the FA Cup. I don't, to Leicester I don't. fans. Yeah, but and that's saying, all that matters. Uh, well, that's no, all that matters. They're, they're, they're the people's club. It's all about the fans, Hugh. We've talked about this. That's why everyone loves them. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Okay. Shiny trophy, great PR. Who cares about the Champions League? Don't need them. Balls to it. Hmm. Interesting ones. Anyone have a view that it would be a failure? Gregor, Alison? Oh, it's hard to call it a failure. It's just that it would have happened in successive seasons when it, they seem to have it in their hands and then been unable to grasp it. So in that sense, it would raise doubts about their ability to push it over yes. the line. <laughs> you wanted to say yes. I understand that you didn't want to you know, hammer the Leicester fans, Alison, but I think that was a resounding thumping yes, Leicester fans, <laughs> just so you know. Go on, Tom. No, but last year they didn't win an FA Cup, so they didn't win a trophy. So that in terms of progression in a season, they've battled for the top four both seasons. And last season, they dropped away in slightly disappointing fashion. This time, they'll have battled all the way to the end and won a trophy, beating one of the best teams in the final. So it's not a failure. I don't think you could ever class it as a failure too when you look at... Uh, yes, they've been they've got themselves in this position, but you know the teams above them have got a turnover of three times as big. Uh, and, it's, and Chelsea probably two and a half. So, you know, the, 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 the fact that they're there in the first place is, is why everyone is so glad to see, <laughs> we're so glad they won the, the FA Cup. We're so glad to see someone kind of ruffling a few feathers at the top end and doing it very smartly and without the same, the same funding. Which takes us neatly on to events at the Hawthorns because for some reason it's it's being touted as some sort of success for Liverpool to finish in the top four. Very, very interesting <laughs> how the tables have turned on the Premier League champions because I think what could end up as being a big, big moment happened for Liverpool yesterday. It finished West Brom 1, Liverpool 2. Of course, more emotion as well. Fantastic weekend for emotion. Um, on show, of course, Alisson scoring a 95th minute winner. It means that if Chelsea and Leicester draw, then Liverpool could finish third without even needing goal difference in the Premier League, which we did not see coming. Alisson Rudd, it was a special moment for the Brazilian. It's huge for the club in many ways, although it's not a trophy. <laughs> um, well, you brought up the question of things being written in the stars. I do not see now, having seen Alisson score an excellent header, given all he's been through and the emotion after the game, that it cannot but be written in the stars that Liverpool grasp a top four place. And I'm not going to say that's a huge success, but I think if you list, and I'm not going to bother listing because we've done it every week on this podcast for the whole season, there is a whole lot of reasons why it's gone wrong for Liverpool this season. And they've if, if I have a criticism, it's that it's taken them too long as a club and coaching staff to come to terms with their defence. They just needed to get on with it and accept it was shocking, to be quite honest. And they've only just started to do that. It's like they've just learned that, <laughs> that the defence is rubbish rather than let it rub off on anyone else. There are elements now of freedom of play, quick thinking that have allowed them to start getting some points up on the board. So uh, I'm... I'm not usually into signs, but I just, anyone who watched Alison's post-match press conference, I mean, you know, I was moved to tears. Most people would have been, it has to mean something, and I think it will. There you go. 
Tom Clark, what do you think of it all? She's, she's really done you there, Hugh, hasn't she? You've tried, you've tried <laughs> to goad and wind her up there, and she's hit you back with the emotion. <laughs> she's come back well, with she, the emotion. She, she Alison, has. It's, it's done a brilliant job on you there. I'm really sorry, but I know, I, and I'll try. I'll try and follow up because, as well, you know, Jurgen Klopp. I was surprised they went all hand in hand celebrating against West Brom again, obviously, as they did for that 2-2 draw. Big moment in Jürgen's Liverpool career back in the day before they were title winners. So we've almost come full circle. Just a little little and kind of nice moment in the middle where they won the league. But this is this is what it's about for Liverpool. Big goals against West Brom. Um, it, it, was, it was fantastic, wasn't it? Uh, as I said on Twitter, trying to pour scorn over the brilliant moment in a miserable way that I often do. Completely unmarked, allowed to run and, you know, given a free header. If anything, a professional footballer, be disappointed if he didn't score. But it does feel now like the momentum. <laughs> it does feel now like the momentum is with Liverpool. It is with Liverpool now. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they've got the easiest run of the two they you have. Know, the teams of two games. I Very would say, so. you know, Chelsea and Leicester. Every chance they all cancel each other out. Cliche. And as Gregor and all of us have been predicting rather gloomily for a long time, they'll sneak into that top four. I'm still not entirely convinced. No, I mean Liverpool. Needed their goalkeeper to score a 95th minute winner to be already relegated West Brom. You can say it, Gregor. Just say it. I know. I know. And Klopp was was right when he said, you know, we we kept going and we were calm and we probably made our best chances in the last five or six minutes. But at the end of the day, they still still needed (laughs) the goalkeeper to get the winner. And they've only won three games in a row, I think. That's like the third time they've done it. Yes, their running is far easier, but Burnley are a... You know, we, we saw Burnley kind of end their end their home record as well. Burnley have always been a, a tough proposition and I don't think that's a foregone conclusion. I'm there, there are different permutations in this though are pretty fascinating, I think. Um you know, obviously what happens in this in between Leicester and, and Chelsea is gonna be huge, but I think still it could be Leicester could get in on goal difference as well. So like everyone's saying that it's completely in Liverpool's hands. It's not. It's not actually in Liverpool's hands. There are lots of permutations. It may not come down to that, but it's not completely in Liverpool's hands. I don't think that's fair to say. No, it isn't. It absolutely is not. Um, Alisson's goal, as we're on it. Sort me through the, the defending there, Gregor Robertson. Tell me how, with 94 minutes and 20 seconds on the clock, you've played football, three players in the West Brom team allow the goalkeeper to run past them into the box, Callum Robinson stays up on the halfway line. Two other West Brom players stay on the edge of the box when there is literally no time left. What what are they doing, Gregor? I'm not saying that as a Man United fan, just, just as a journalist. <laughs> that didn't sound like it. Um, I said, I, just, could the camera cut to the kind of to the huddle in the middle just before the ball came in? And I saw Alison and I was like, He's walking past everyone. No one. Why is no one going? To, it, it, that all through, came through my mind. I was like, "Why is no one closing him down? Why? Why is no one marking him? Why is no one?" And then you saw in the replays. I think it was Maitland Niles. He kind of backed towards to mark someone on the edge of the box, literally kind of crossing the path of Allison, who went past them into the box. And you're thinking, I just think it lacked someone, a leader, to kind of say it all that happens is such such you know, split seconds and it happens really quickly and, and it's not easy. And when a goalkeeper comes into the box, you know, it throws throws something wild into the mix. But it needed somebody to take control of the situation. And I think everyone afterwards looked at, at Kyle Bartley. 
his position was to be the man, the free man on this edge of six yard box who goes and attacks it. But if the goalkeeper comes into the box, I think probably you're, you throw that job out the window or you have to be the one who goes and wins it. And he didn't. So I think Kyle Bartley perhaps is the man you've got to lay the blame at the door. I half wondered whether West Brom were kind of just going, oh, well, he's a keeper. He won't score. Just leave him. Just leave him. Does that actually happen? You see when some a substitute comes on, you know, they're pulling at the iPad and saying, right, you're now, you're now going to mark him at set pieces. So everyone has a man to mark. So it need, that's why I'm saying it needed someone to step out of the kind of the coaching manual and just go, look, the goalkeeper's coming up. He wasn't just <laughs> you need coming to up. Mark him. You need to mark him or somebody. Or Kyle Bartley is a spare man. I'll go and mark him. So like it needed, it needed a leader. It needs someone to, to tear up the... You know what? What the, the things that are stuck in the dressing room wall? Who tells you who you're marking? And say someday you go mark him, or I'll go mark him, and no one did it. But I watched it from I've watched it many times, and <laughs> from a Liverpool from a Liverpool perspective, I think you have to give credit for how quite how beautiful it was. Alisson Lovely came thing. up. He did not. Now key is he did not stop moving. He didn't run upfield in a mad way. He ran upfield in a composed way. Trent Alexander-Arnold saw his movement. He jogged ever so slightly on the spot to make sure he didn't stop moving. Trent delivered the corner early so that he was still in that moment of, not euphoria, in that moment of, I'm going to make a difference without Mm -hmm. having to think about, well, actually, should I be here? Oh, is this a bit stupid? Because I'm sure that crosses a lot of keepers' minds when they're sort of jockeying around in the box and then they start thinking oh if they clear the ball now it's going to go in my net and then they're thinking about running back to their own net before they've even decided what they're going to do there was no time for that to happen it was a seamless moment the way the corner was delivered and Alison went up it was all part of the same movement from the moment at which he decided to jog upfield so it I it was I mean you can I understand what you're saying about the defence, but it was a se- it was a practically seamless moment. It was, yeah, yeah. There wasn't long for anyone to make that decision. No, except for the fact that he ran up from his own goal. I mean, apart from the fact he's literally jogged the length of the pitch, who would have known this was going to happen? Uh, I think it was a three-quarter pace stride. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, it provided us with one of the great moments uh, in the Premier League, though, and it could well mean something very special for Liverpool. So we'll discuss it a little bit later on. Goalkeeper scoring, of course, one of the great things in the game. Uh, There were another couple of moments that went Liverpool's way, Alisson. Mike Dean giving a free kick to Liverpool for no apparent reason. Can you yeah. explain it? <laughs> I can't it led explain to a goal, it. remember it? It led to Liverpool's first goal. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because it, it's it's a it was a honestly it was a bit like a Monty Python sketch. You know when they they have the uh, philosophers footballers. It was like a moment from that, completely random. It's, it, why would it, why would a referee just randomly give a free kick? I cannot explain it. It is not an offence. Conspiracy. For a player to touch you, for a player to touch you when you're not, he wasn't really moving and the player sort of bumped into him slightly. It was, it was, it was Fabino, wasn't it? He bumped into him. Mm-hmm. That's not and a... And he gave the ball away. That's not a... I think, I think it was the fact he gave the ball away that he thought, oh no, I've, I've influenced the game there somehow. But he wasn't even looking at how, what was happening. He just, he just felt a, he just felt a knock on his back, I think. And even if he'd felt he had... He hadn't, but if he felt he had interfered with the ball in play... It's a drop ball, isn't it? 
Well, <laughs> I think under the new rules, it would have been a free kick to the person who he'd taken the ball off, but he hadn't taken the ball off anybody. He hadn't diverted the ball off anybody. The player had touched him, not the ball. So it mm. didn't make any sense. It, did, it didn't. If the ball had touched him, it would, have, it it would have been an sense, uncontested no. drop ball. He would have just dropped the ball at the feet of the Liverpool player. Um, it was just baffling. Yeah. Uh, another couple of things were baffling. Matt, Matty Phillips, who the ball went to, decided yeah. that he would just kick the ball straight back into that. No, not that loft it into the hands of a Liverpool player. <laughs> he flicked up into yeah. his arms, yeah. Fabinho then <laughs> took a quick free kick. And then the player on the edge of the box for West Brom, who decided we were going to pass it along the edge of the box and then give it away. And then Liverpool scored immediately. But it did reek of we've already been relegated, including the defending for the set piece. Like, why are you leaving a striker up if you need a point against the Premier League champions with literally no time on the clock? Because they all went, we're going down anyway, but wouldn't it be great to beat Liverpool? So if we can clear this, we might be able to score into the open goal and, and get a great victory against Liverpool to take the championship with us. It was just one of those days, wasn't it, Tom? I think you're right. Yeah, Alisson's goal at the end kind of capped a slight... It was slightly bizarre watching it. And the other thing in Liverpool's favour is that they've struggled creating chances this season. They actually look quite good and created quite a lot of chances. Um, helped partly because, I wouldn't say, it, well, it was kamikaze for West Brom standards anyway. West Brom under Sam Allardyce, it was pretty kamikaze. But it also meant that they themselves created quite a lot of chances. I thought in the first half, I was watching them going, as a West Brom fan, you'd be watching this thinking, why the hell haven't we played like this all season? They were knocking it around quite well up front, playing one, two-touch football. Um so there is a flip side to your to your very, uh, I was going to say eloquent, but I'm not sure they are eloquent, Hugh. You're very passionate this morning about uh, West, Brom's, West Brom's performance. But they, they did have, have a go, um, which was also did, yeah. about them being a bit more cavalier and going, well, we're relegated. And they, they, they could have been 2-1 up. They had chances to score. They, got, so they scored a very good goal. Hal Robson-Kanu took it really well. So the, there is a flip side to this in defence of West Brom that they they had a go and they played really well um, in in parts whilst also being a bit uh, complacent at times. What do we think about their goal that wasn't? I think I agree with Sam Allardyce. Disgrace. <laughs> <laughs> but I I was initially what what on earth have they disallowed that for? And then I realised it's the whole goalkeeper infringement in stood in front yeah. of me. And I think. Just to be fair, Hugh, I think I vaguely remember one against Man United for Everton where someone was stood vaguely near David De Gea and the goal went in and it was disallowed. But here's the difference. Here okay, is the I difference. He was ready. He was ready for me. He Here was ready for me. This was essentially a flick on to the back post. Essentially. Yeah. It was it was a wayward attempt at goal, but it wasn't on target. So if Allison was going to save the attempt at goal, then fair enough. You know, if it was going into the back of the net or towards the net and he had to save that header, it's offside. But it wasn't mm. even on target. It went across the face of the goal and someone else put it in the back post. Mm. So it should have been a goal because he wasn't blocked from saving the attempt that was going in the back of the net or even near the back of the net. So it should have been a goal. But this is the problem with the rules that we've got and the way we officiate the game at the minute. It's, it's the kind of black and white nature and therefore by Phillips being stood there, the officials go well. That's you know he's interfering with play. It's offside. There's a there's a, there's a lack of judgment that you're putting into the uh, analysis there about the nature of the flick on and the nature of the goal that was scored. That, that doesn't doesn't come into football as much anymore, unfortunately. But that's the case. What if there was a player offside and Allison was looking out to the right hand side of the pitch and there was a player offside blocking him from seeing a cross into the box and it got crossed in and someone headed in at the back post? Would that be offside? If, if someone still judged him to be interfering with play, I think they probably would. Yeah, I'm not saying it's but, right. All right, I'm then would saying... he be interfering with play? 
<laughs> I, 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 you've lost me, but I'm I'm just saying that there's a there's a black and white nature to the way the way they judge these things, and the fact that he was stood in that position. The rules of football are just a nonsense now, aren't they? <laughs> Let's be honest. They, they, why don't we keep talking about this? And then the way referees kind of interpret them, and then the, what they're doing in a in Stockley Park, it's like. Come on, guys! Please, this summer, just get together and like figure these things out a little bit and just simplify it. Surely. I mean, that is that is ultimately the game podcast position. We have these various discussions <laughs> on various different. I love how we've got a position. No, yeah. but we have, and you are the spokesperson for it because we have these discussions about the myriad of different decisions and VAR oh. and offside and handball, and they often end up with Gregor going, "The rules." I was going to do a Scottish accent, but I decided not to. The rules are nonsense. We need to sort them out. And unfortunately, that's the case. You know, Hugh, you and I can argue it back and forth. The fact is, that's how they judged it. I think it's, I think it's ridiculous too, but that's why it happened. Lots more for us to go through on the game podcast, but a couple of great moments uh, already discussed. We'll uh, continue to talk about the Women's Champions League final next. We'll also talk about Wolves and Everton. How bad have they been this season? But remember, if you're enjoying the game podcast, please do give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. And make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times right now. Remember, if you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. So go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started for more of our award-winning journalism. Well, there was a double disappointment for a certain club in West London this weekend because Chelsea's women, having made it through to their first Champions League final, were thumped 4-0 by Barcelona in the showpiece in Gothenburg. It included conceding after just 33 seconds and being 3-0 down after just 36 minutes. It was the biggest ever losing margin in a women's final, a really disappointing result for Emma Hayes and her team. Earlier on, I spoke to the Times' Molly Hudson, who's still in Sweden, and I asked if she could believe what she was seeing in that first half. To be honest, it was it was very very surreal. I think it was just it was literally kickoff, and then I think Emma Hayes said after the game, it was like the game was almost over before it began. And um, obviously Barcelona hit the bar um, through the Martins. Chelsea never really recovered. And then suddenly they were behind within literally 33 seconds. And we were lucky enough to had quite a good position in the press box right behind the Chelsea dugout. And Emma Hayes just sort of turned around and, and just sort of went, what? You know, it's just a nightmare that Chelsea had sort of built towards this moment for so long, for, for nine years, first Champions League final in their history. And then it to, to go so badly wrong so quickly I think it, it was impossible for that not to be a shock for for everyone watching but I think also for the players as well. Did the occasion get to Chelsea do you think at all? Yeah I think so and I think a, a big part of it was that experience I mean Barcelona had lost a final in, in 2019 quite quite heavily to, to Lyons they lost 4-1 you know were, were thoroughly outplayed and I think they would say the same. They just weren't ready uh, that year. And seven of those players that started that game started last night. And I think it it was a big sense of it. It wasn't new for them. I suppose almost the worst had already happened. They'd experienced that. They'd gone through that. Whereas Chelsea, it it was the biggest game quite comfortably of the careers of most of those players. Um, Penilla Harder has played in in two finals and and was beaten um, as part of the Wolfsburg team. But 
yeah, in terms of the vast, vast majority of that team, it's it's young. The connections are quite new, and I think that that does play a big part because I know it's only football, it's only a game, it's only you know what you do every other game of the season. But there's just so much build up, even the travel, the increased media attention, all of that is 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 so new and it's so different. And I think in a way, it's easy to be really, really disappointed with the way the game went and the scoreline and, and the manner of defeat. But it's also worth remembering, as as Hayes sort of said last night, that actually they're still the second best team in Europe. And for Chelsea, that's a step forward because they've never even got to a final before. Where does this leave Chelsea now? Are they on the verge of a domestic dynasty? You know, maybe with a Champions League triumph to come in the, the next few years? I think it's somewhere that Chelsea can build from. I think they're almost in the position that Barcelona were two seasons ago after that that defeat to Lyon. I think to get so close, to experience that hurt, speaking to some of the Barcelona players um, last week, it, it, they do look back on that and say that that's what pushed them on, to know that they'd got there, but they weren't quite good enough, that you know they needed to put that extra work in, that, that extra experience. Um, and I think I think it bodes well for Chelsea. I don't think anything is, you know, hugely going to change. As I say, the the team is quite inexperienced relatively in terms of their you know links together. Emma Hayes, you know, hopefully isn't going anywhere as manager. So no doubt they'll come again. I think actually it was a it was a bit of a strange one. We we were sort of speaking last night that Barcelona have such a good league record. One the won their league, 128 goals, um, 26 wins out of 26. Um, You'd think that maybe the Women's Super League being more competitive would have given Chelsea an edge, but it didn't didn't seem to translate last night. But I think you you still look at Chelsea as as favourites for the the Women's Super League, certainly next season. Can Emma Hayes take this team on to, to greater things? Yeah, I think so. And I think she'll reflect... On last night, uh, she, she was she actually looked quite quite calm, quite relaxed. We was watching her as she sort of waited for kickoff and was having a little laugh and joke, and you know seemed seemed very relaxed. And obviously, she had been there to some extent before as an assistant manager in the two thousand and seven eight season when um, Arsenal won the UEFA Women's Cup when she was assistant to the legendary Vic Akers, and she was quite calm, quite relaxed. I think she was just frustrated really by the end with the way it went and there was only so much she could really do with, with the circumstances obviously the, the first goal was an own goal the second a penalty that was probably slightly harsh and it, it did feel as though not just Chelsea were sort of outplayed the the luck was also probably against them I think she'll she'll take that experience she she knows that dressing room well enough to know that it will only push them forward and and she'll certainly be leading that now, we speak on a day where many, many things will change, uh, both domestically and for us travelling across Europe. The game took place in Gothenburg, in Sweden. I, I just wondered, on a personal note, how you found it and what the restrictions are like there? Did it affect you in any way? Yeah, it was a, It was firstly a real privilege to be out here. Um, for a lot of us, it was the, the first sort of foreign trip we'd had since the, the She Believes Cup back in 2020. Um so I think it was was just really happy to be here. Obviously, uh, extensive kind of COVID testing and letters of approval from the Swedish FA just to be out here. Um, but yeah, it, it it's a bit strange, really. Where, whereas in England, the the sort of use of masks has been 
quite strict. It's quite relaxed here. But but on the other hand, they have a, an 8 p.m. curfew um, where restaurants and, and bars and most of the shops are all closed. So I think it's it, it is very surreal. And particularly last night, you was, you was watching those moments of, of kind of drama. And sometimes it just go, you know, deadly, deadly quiet. And that, it's, so, it's so strange for a Champions League final. And I think we're we're all just, you know, can't wait to get to get fans back in and and get them part of these these really big occasions again. Because you know, it was, for for all of of Chelsea's struggles, there was some, some fantastic football on show for for Barcelona, and I'm sure their fans are absolutely delighted. Our thanks to Molly Hudson. You can read uh, her dissection of everything that happened out in Gothenburg in the Times right now, by the way. Uh, We'll get back to discussing the Premier League now after that disappointment in the Champions League final in Europe, of course. Domestic issues at hand. And really, we wanted to discuss two of the sides who maybe we expected more from this season. Both Wolverhampton Wanderers and Everton have had a tough time in in different ways. Let's start with Wolves. Remember, they were promoted to the top flight in 2018 and they are supposedly having a poor season, sitting 12th place, 12 wins, 9 draws and 15 defeats, but only three wins in the last 11. Tom, I don't know about this. I really don't know about this. Do you think they've had a bad season? You sound so sceptical already, Hugh. Sounds so, so ready to defend the mighty Wolves. Um, I mean, the first thing to say is they're obviously missing Ralph Jimenez. That's a big, big loss, his injury. Um, I was looking before at some of the stats and they have the third worst shot conversion rate in the league this season. Only Sheffield United and Fulham are worse in that statistical metric. So it, it says a lot about, they're, la- they're lacking that goal scorer Um and that's been, you know, seen quite a lot up since Jimenez has been out. Fabio Silva looks like a talented player, but he's very young. He's missed quite a lot of chances in the games that I've seen. So I think that's quite an important factor. Um, they obviously lost Jota as well to Liverpool. So you're essentially talking about them not having two of their best attackers for a long portion of the season. I think there's still a lot to like about Wolves. I think maybe you could say that it's a transition season if you're allowed to say that even though they've not been in the Premier League that long they came up blew lots of people away Um, their tactics were widely lauded for how fantastic they were had a lot of exciting players largely foreign players and all underpinned and held together by Connor Cody at the back so I want it'll be interesting summer because I think they need to freshen things up they need to they need maybe uh, reinforcements up front um, but they, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm completely on the fence on this one for once um, as to whether they, I, I, they've had a bad season. I think there are reasons for maybe Wolves fans to be worried, but they can arrest that potential slide with some good signings this summer, I think. Alison, what do you think? Raul Jimenez and his head injury, that, that did change the complexion of their season. But I always wonder about expectation in football and how quickly it changes. This is a side that came up to the Premier League in in 2018. I know they have been in the Premier League before. It's Wolverhampton Wanderers with a great history in English football. 12th place isn't that bad, is it? Not really. I mean, yeah, historical context. I think if you'd said, if you'd given this as the the narrative to Wolves fans, they'd have said, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds really good. We're not going to become a yo-yo club. It's fine. And we're judging them on how, how, how much of a breath of fresh air they were when they did come up and um, didn't seem to stutter at all at making the change from championship football to the Premier League. I think what's happened is that 
a lot of the good football they played and won them new fans was it was really quite um they play without pressure. They had a, I wouldn't call it arrogance, but a really high level of self-confidence that those sort of raking crossfield passes would come off. Um, they sort, they kept on surprising people with just how uh, sort of elite a style they played. It was, it was quite expansive, and there was a lot of pace and joy about it. Um, and I think two two things have happened. One is I think when when a player is ruled out because of a nasty head injury. That makes people sort of wobble emotionally, but also the rest of the teams have sort of got used to that their their peculiar style, if you like, and they're, they're better equipped to, to to be alert to how they they break forward, and so they've just they've just lost some of that that sense of um, entitlement. Isn't quite the right word because I don't think they're like that, but they, they they were able to sort of they're a bit like Leeds are now in that they're not they weren't scared of the challenge ahead. They, you know, they, they were like a team that didn't know their place, um, and so that was that was really refreshing. And I think they've had the self doubts crept in, whether that's because other teams have found them out or because Jimenez's injury was so so shocking. Um, I think also they, every, I think every club has had a different reason or a different way of suffering from from the pandemic football, and I think they have they have suffered. So I would give them. I'd give Nuno a chance in the summer to tweak it. I don't think they need a massive overhaul and they'll probably come back with um, with the fans just, just having reignited that that self-confidence more than anything, I think. Nothing, there's nothing wrong innately with them. They're just a bit flatter than they used to be. I think there's a few things here. I think, you know, first thing is they wildly over, over uh, you know, outplayed their expectations and by reaching an FA Cup semi-final, Europa League quarter-final to the eventual winners. Um, they finished as high seventh, so that was a remarkable achievement. And I agree with Alison. I think they have been quite badly affected by, by the pandemic. I think after all of that and in, the impact of injuries and the pandemic, Nuno now realises he needs a bigger squad. He's always been having such a tight, tight knit. You know, the fewest changes usually in the Premier League uh, to start an eleven every every season. I think he realises now realises now that that that's not sustainable. And another thing is, he's he's changing the style. They were so so rooted and wedded to a three at the back, and he's kind of seems to be step by step through, going to a back four, and that's going to take some time to adjust to as well. And it looks like that's what he feels is is the future for them. So I think there are you throw all those things into the mix, and you probably see why Wolves are having a middling season. But crikey, if they're mid finish mid table, when you when you take all of that into account, I agree with you. I don't think this is a is any is a disaster by any means at all um, and I think they w- he will be backed and I think they probably will improve next season Let's talk about Everton next they were atrocious at the weekend they were beaten 1-0 by Sheffield United the bottom side in the Premier League the winning goal scored by and I think he played really well a 17 year old Canadian by the name of Daniel Jebison, who's got a lot of teams in Europe after him but still you'd expect um, Everton to have done better they're now 8th although they're 3 points off the 6th place And I wonder, the question on Everton really, is what we expected from them this year because they were 12th last season. And to to go into the last couple of games, three points off sixth place. I mean, what did we expect, Alison? Oh, we expected more than this. They're a Shakespearean tragedy. It's ridiculous. You've even got Ancelotti who, you know, he's, he's a media darling manager. Everyone loves him. And that's why I think expectations were particularly high. 
um, even he's he stood there shrugging and saying, "I don't know. I don't know what's going wrong. I don't know why we're doing this. I don't know why we can't win at home." He says he takes responsibility, but he hopes the players do too. That means he's taking no responsibility. That's what it means when a manager says that. It means nothing if you say you take responsibility. Then in the next sentence, you say you hope the players are taking some too. They are. Uh, they're 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 very um they're very ooh, what are they bit 1992 I don't know they're very off off what currently counts in the Premier League they don't have enough they don't press enough they don't have enough pace they don't have enough energy they don't have enough synergy that um uh, the, uh, I, I, they are the most I would say they are the, the most annoying team to watch and I'm not coming at this because I'm a little bit <laughs> I don't like Everton. They're the most annoying team to watch because they actually have players I really admire, mostly Gilby Sigurdsson, and they just don't. So what that means is I do watch them closely to see what's going wrong, and they just don't ever seem to quite get it right tactically. Uh, I never feel he's picked the right team for the right opposition. They stutter. Um, they never get into a, a sense of, oh, we won that game. What did we learn? And move on. They sort of one step forward, two step back. It's, they are they are the most frustrating team, the most frustrating team in the Premier League because, in theory, they were supposed to be stylish and well managed and to have a chance of breaking into the top four. What rot they even come close! It is an embarrassment. I wanted to touch on two of the. I think we've uh, got to the nub of what Alison feels about Everton. There certainly. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she raises she raises a couple of very interesting points, and she says um, annoying and uh, frustrating. I would say a bit boring as well. That's with some of the players, as Alison quite rightly points out. It should be a lot more exciting to watch. They were poor, as you say, Hugh, against Sheffield United. There was the game uh, we talked about before the show about doing our end-of-season awards in a few weeks. And if there was an award for the most boring game, Arsenal nil, Everton won a few weeks ago was the most boring game I've seen in a long, long time. And I watched some boring football because I watched the Football League. So uh, <laughs> that was that was atrocious. But it, And Alison talks ta- about tactics. I think she's right. It all just looks a bit confused. They've obviously done better than I thought they would. But there is still that sense that I'm not, I, it all feels a bit confused. If you're going to have Dominic Calvert-Lewin on the pitch, why not have some wingers to put crosses into the box? In, in matches where I've watched them, they're trying to build little triangles in order to get an, create an overlap for Luca Dina to get down the flank and whip a ball into the box for Dominic Calvert-Lewin to get on the end of. That seemed like their only tactic. Uh, it was interesting. I was speaking to um, a friend of mine who's an Everton fan and he says that we in the media love Richarlison and say what a great player he is, but actually that he, in some respects, is the problem because he's a, he's a talented player who doesn't quite fit in what they're doing. And so you end up with... Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin in central areas. And then behind them, your two great players are Hammers and Sigurdsson, who also want to be buzzing around in central areas in pockets. You've got no real width unless you've got your fullbacks bombing forward. It all just feels a bit limited to me. I wouldn't quite go as far as Alisson, but I, I do think there needs to be a bit of a rethink in terms of this summer and some of the signings they maybe need to make and maybe need to let some let some of the big players go, maybe cash in on Richarlison and, and sign two exciting young wingers because it, it needs a rethink at the minute. It's all, it's all a bit dull. I think the most interesting thing of, of all is that Ancelotti has said for a number of weeks now, we're a team who are good with the ball. So th- there's, this, there's this kind of divide where if they have... If they're the team who are sitting deep and soaking up pressure and stuff, they tend to do all right. They maybe maybe play on the break or they win from a set piece. They're very good at set pieces. I think they're the third 
third best team in the in the league at set pieces. But if they if they're the team who have to take the initiative, they really struggled. And I saw a really interesting stat by a guy called Matt Cheatham, who's a statistician for uh, Sky Sports. I saw this on Twitter, and he said that Everton have now lost the last five games with sixty percent possession or more. So they average zero point five points per game with sixty percent possession and 1.9 points per game under 40% possession. So, and Ancelotti's saying the same thing. He's, there's a dividing line. If they're the team who have the ball and have possession and have to take take the initiative, they're really struggling. Um, so, I don't know, it's hard not to lay that somewhere. At the, it's in some way at the door of Ancelotti. But at the same time, I think what Tom's saying is true. And I think this goes back to a kind of legacy of a number of years of just chucking money at, at the pitch, basically without any real kind of coherent strategy. Um, I still think they've got some way to kind of, to go to kind of fit that all back together. Let's end on those goals. We mentioned a little bit earlier on the first goalkeeper in Liverpool's history to score a goal, believe it or not, dating back to 1892 is Alisson after that goal at the Hawthorns, which of course has got us thinking about our best favourite goals scored by goalkeepers. Tom Clark, the floor is yours. Oh, goodness me. We could do a whole podcast on this, Hugh. Honestly, with all the suggestions that I've had on Twitter, so many, some that I knew, some that I didn't. Peter Schmeichel has obviously scored a number of great goals down the years, including a towering header against Rotel Voldegograd in the UEFA Cup, sadly. <laughs> Wasn't good enough to get your boys through, Hugh. Jose mm. Luis Schillever, I think, scored a lot of great goals. Legend. He used to take free free kicks and penalties, I believe. Lots of mentions for Jimmy Glass, of course. Kevin Pressman's penalty-taking ability. But there's a couple I want to mention that, again, in my role as here's what to watch on YouTube this week. Um, role on the Game podcast, I would thoroughly recommend you looking up Mark Poom's header for Sunderland which if you think Allison's is good in terms of the run and the timing of the run and the jump, this is absolutely extraordinary. Back post, bullet header, absolutely unbelievable against Derby. There's another one, and forgive me on the pronunciations here, Oscarine Masaluke. Look up Wonder Goal Baroka against Orlando. This is absolutely extraordinary. It's a bouncing ball from a corner, overhead kick in the last minute for an equaliser. One of the most outrageous things I've ever, ever seen. And then other headers as well. We've got a Benevento's Alberto Brignoli with a last oh, yeah. minute. I think that was for, I think it might have been against AC Milan. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was against AC Milan. No, it was. AC it was Milan. First, wasn't it that first win in Serie A history or something like that? Yeah, it was sort a, of something extraordinary like that. Five it, games before the end of the season. Unbelievable header. It's like a diving you know, but not a diving header in loads of space where you think it's safe to just throw yourself at the ball. He actually dives like into the middle, the mass of players and manages to flick it into the top corner. Extraordinary stuff. I mean, that is an, that is your afternoon sorted. But I, all, all I would like to just finally finish on from me is a plea to one man. And this is, the, we've had Steve as a regular listener who as soon as Alison scored, got in touch with me and said, it's all on Pep now. Pep can, Pep can you know, play the final chump card. Make it happen, Pep. Stick Edison up front. Give the people what they want. <laughs> it's the only way, you know, Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool have come back and, you know, taken a bit of the limelight away from you this season. Pep, make it happen. There's only one thing for it. Stick him up front. You've won the league. Make it happen. Make it happen, Pep. You can do it. Listen, I'll be at the game against Brighton, so I'm hoping it does. It absolutely does happen. Uh, Alison, Pass on a message from me. Please make <laughs> it happen. If I can make Pep change his team, then yeah, absolutely I will. Uh, Gregor, Alison, can you remember any? I've got to give a shout out to my mate, 
Barry Roach, the guy who I mentioned a few weeks ago because he um, a coffee cup once gave him a very embarrassing moment against Derby County for Nottingham Forest. Um, he scored. He was the last. In fact, I didn't know this, but it was in Bill's Bill's excellent piece. He was the last player to score a league goal in 2016 for Morecambe against uh, Portsmouth. So Morecambe always battling relegation until the season uh, against Portsmouth, who were chasing promotion from League League Two. Uh, were one 0 up until the 94th minute. Up went big six foot four Barry. Um, and I tell you, it was <laughs> it comes close to, to Allison's for for quality. Um, although the goalkeeper came out and tried to punch it, I don't know what he was thinking. Big Roachy soaring through the air, boom, bottom <laughs> corner. And uh, I, I I did a piece of them last year actually because he played for Morecambe for years. He's a record record appearance holder, shrimps legend, and he was he, that was the, the highlight of his career. He said they've kind of eleven man pile on people giving him like rubbing mud in his face, his teammates <laughs> one grabbed his balls. I don't know if I could say that. But <laughs> it was just said it was like a totally wild moment and then he was you know, Radio Five Live called him up on the way home. Sky Sports were turned up in his living room the next day asking him to go through it. It was, you know, for a lower league player, absolute, you know, fifteen minutes of fame. Brilliant. Alison? Oh, I did enjoy Tom's list as though that happens all the time <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, and no well, I mean, when it does happen it is it is fun but honestly any of those players you listed Tom did any of them have to suffer their father dying in a drowning accident age 57 and not being able to go home because of a pandemic no there is only one goalkeeper <laughs> goal that we'll ever remember have you checked that <laughs> <laughs> just in case we I'm going to have to find out aren't I but you know you're right yeah. Alison's is, is set the bar very high but I would thoroughly recommend any listeners having a good troll back through the uh, YouTube clips and things like that there's so many great ones out and a piece on the times right yes Bill Edgar will be republishing it later today uh, online but in January Bill published a fantastic basically the compendium everything you could ever want to know about league goals by goalkeepers uh, broken down from those, you know, long punts downfield. I think Paul Robinson scored a few, didn't he, in his time that just bounce over your opposite number to headers. To There was a great one I found as well by Brad Friedel showed his goalkeeping instincts. That moment, as Greg had discussed before, about the keeper stays forward and stays in the box and it bounces around a bit and Brad Friedel flicks it in for Blackburn against uh, Charlton, almost Andy Cole-esque in the box. They actually went on to then lose after he'd scored that mm-hmm. equaliser. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so anyone who wants to know anything, Bill Edgar has got everything you need to know and it'll be online later today. Brilliant. Of course, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times uh, right now. I'll tell you all about that in a second. But we will see you on Thursday. Tom Clark, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. I will see you then. I will be in a hotel room in Burnley, having been at the game between Burnley and Liverpool. So there might be celebrations, Alison. Who knows? Um, depending on the result, we'll see if the Champions League race goes down to the final day. Loads for us to look ahead to on Thursday. As I said, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times right now across all of your devices for more of our award-winning journalism. Remember, if you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. Go online, search the times.co.uk forward slash the game. We will see you on Thursday. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.